Good morning, everybody. I'm wearing today some of my birthday presents. Thank you, Anna. New boots, new trousers, new shirt, and a new hoodie. Trouble was, the hoodie I've discovered has all deposited itself on my shirt. <laughs> so in case you're wondering why I'm wearing what looks like a dirty shirt, I'm not. It was clean before, and the hoodie has all come off on it. So just to explain why I look the way I do, or one of the reasons I look the way I do. <laughs> Maybe a better way of putting it. Claire and I were able to spend a few weeks on holiday back in uh, June in Canada. We had a, a few weeks over in Canada, and we had a fantastic time. This is us at a place called Lake Moraine uh, in British Columbia. Uh, we even saw a few bears. Uh, we did actually see some real ones, but these were obviously not real ones. But we had a great time, but eventually the holiday had to come to an end. And that's always the sad bit, isn't it, when you've got to go home. And I don't know about you, but once I start my homeward journey, when you're going home, all I want to do is just get home. If you could click your fingers, if I could click my fingers and be back in my house without all the kind of hassle, I would definitely do that. It would be great. We, we had to uh, be at the airport at least two hours before departure. And then, of course, our flight was delayed in leaving. The flight lasted for 10 hours. We had to wear face masks for entire 10 hours, which was pretty grim. I won't say which airline we're flying with, otherwise I might get sued. But they were the worst international airline I've ever flown with. Tell me uh, afterwards and I can tell you which not to fly with. The food was awful. There was a little pot of cucumber, which was advertised as a side salad. It was soggy cucumber. It was awful. And when we landed at Heathrow, we had to spend at least a whole hour sat on the tarmac waiting for a gate and just sat there and sat there. Meanwhile, knowing that our train was departing from King's Cross in kind of the clock was ticking down and the tension was building. So once we got through, we had to then queue at the border for ages. Definitely border control has gone downhill since I left. And then we had to run from Terminal 3 to the Heathrow Express and running with all our cases, eventually got on there, made it, dashed across London, got to King's Cross, and then kind of breathed a sigh of relief as we boarded the Newcastle train, which then had another three hours uh, of uh, traveling up to Newcastle. And we finally got on the train, and it was great just to relax and pause. My granddad was born in Wall's End, and he lived most of his life in Jarrow, and he was the most passionate Geordie. And he always said that the only good thing to come out of London was the Newcastle train. And I've got to be totally honest, if I, if I, well, I have to be totally honest, I totally agree. It was, and it always is, a great feeling. I was born in London as well, so don't worry. It, it was, and it always is, a great feeling to get on the Newcastle train, and then as it pulls out of King's Cross, you think, oh, finally going home. And it was fantastic. Just over three hours later to travel across the King Edward Seventh Bridge, and then over there over time and look to your right and then see that wonderful view of all the bridges, especially the Tyne Bridge. Few views in the world, in my opinion, that rival that view. It was wonderful to finally be home, but we couldn't get home without a long, expensive and exhausting journey. And, and, and that's because most things in life that are worth doing are difficult. Most things that are worth doing in life are actually really difficult. If something is easy, then it's probably not really worth doing. On your seat, there's an outline, and if you want to uh, make use of that, all the points are on there. And there's some things to fill in as well a bit later on as well, if that helps 
you this morning. Now, the Bible records for us the amazing journey that the people of Israel took uh, in 1444 BC from the land of Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula and eventually to the promised land, what is now modern-day Israel, the special land that God had promised to his chosen people. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, They'd endured all kinds of horrendous things as slaves. At one point, even Pharaoh had ordered that all the male uh, Israelite babies should be murdered and put to death. Just horrendous. And it had been a terrible time, and the people had suffered really, really badly. But then God had called his chosen people. He chose to rescue his chosen people. And God appointed a man called Moses, and Moses' job was to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and to take them to the promised land. There were about two and a half million of them, and Moses had led them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, down into the Sinai Peninsula. And there they waited just over a year while God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and all the other laws and rules that they had to live by as part of the special covenant that he had with them. And then after 13 months of le- since they left Egypt, they were ready to leave and then travel north up to the promised land. And the journey shouldn't have taken them long, perhaps a few weeks at the very most. As we're going to see next week when Paul uh, is speaking for us, instead of it just taking a few weeks, because they were disobedient, it ended up taking 40 years. Because God said none of the people that were alive in that generation would be able to see the promised land. So they ended up spending 40 years until that generation died out. We're going to read in a moment from Numbers chapter 11 in the Old Testament of the Bible. And the events that are recorded for us there take place just over a year after they'd left Egypt. A year is a long time, but it was a necessary interval to prepare them for what lay ahead. Nothing in life that's worth doing is ever easy. And that was certainly the case for the Israelites. But what they were doing by camping in the desert for over a year was definitely worth it. It probably didn't seem like it to them at the time, but it really was because God had been giving them all of the details of the covenant that he'd entered into them with. He'd, he, he, he was giving them the Ten Commandments and how to worship him and the instructions for building the tabernacle and so on. And not only that, but as they look back, they'd escaped the horrendous slavery in Egypt and they were on their way to the land that God had promised them, the special land, the, the, the promised land. God had called a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it will be a land that met all their material needs. It will be an amazing and a wonderful place to live, a total contrast with what they had been doing as slaves in Egypt. This is what he said to Moses about 18 months earlier. He said, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But for just over a year, they were going to have to wait. They had to camp in the desert while God gave them all of the details of this special covenant and prepared them for living in the promised land. They had to do the hard yards now as they waited for that great blessing that was ahead of them. You can imagine that trying to feed two and a half million people wasn't an easy task. It would be quite a challenge. They had their flocks and their herds, but they, they, they weren't allowed to eat those. And it would be a real challenge trying to feed two and a half million people in basically what was just desert and wilderness without any food. And so the Bible tells us that God miraculously provided for them every single day. He sent down something from heaven which was called manna, which was a kind of white substance that God would send down every night. And every day they had to go out and collect it. They weren't allowed to store it up. They had to just eat it that day. They they could grind it up and they could make it into cakes or loaves. But you can imagine that after a year of living on that manna, the same diet every day, as amazing and as supernatural and as wonderful a provision as it was from God, 
maybe you'd probably want something else to eat. They had flocks of sheep and goat, and, and they had herds of cattle, but they were reserved for the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle. So they couldn't eat from those. And it was probably a pretty hard and a pretty tough life, living in tents, living in the desert, in the wilderness, and it was probably pretty boring for most of the people, most of the time. But it would all be worth it, because one day soon they would be in the promised land, and if they'd obeyed, as we're going to see next week, if, if they'd obeyed, they'd be in the promised land in a very short space of time. The 13 months that they spent in the desert would all be worth it once they entered into the land that God had promised. And it seems that most of the people were prepared to put up with the hardships and trust in God, but there were some that weren't. So let's read what happened with their, when their dissatisfaction with God and with his provision reared its ugly head. Let's read from Numbers chapter 11. And verses 4 to 23, and then we're going to skip down to verse 31 and read to 35. So you can just listen if you want, or you can turn in your Bible. Numbers 11, and we're going to start at verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it, into a hand, sorry, ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted, something like, it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now if I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there and with you. I will come down and speak with you there. I will take of the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in pre preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all of the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will, see, you will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. And then down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. 
Then they spread, out, spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hetava because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hetava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. There was a group of people in the Israelite camp that, who are described in verse 4 by Moses as the rabble. They were real troublemakers. The rabble, it says, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The rabble, as they are described, which were only a, a small group of people, ended up influencing loads of people, ended, ended up influencing pretty much the whole nation until everybody started to complain big time. They were wailing, it says here. They were fed up with what God was providing them with, the manna. And they were craving the meat, and they looked back romantically to the foods that they imagined that they were eating in Egypt, except that they had, I think, very selective memories, because they had been slaves in Egypt. There was no way they were kind of living it up back in Egypt. They were slaves. They were having terrible time. They certainly weren't eating loads of great food. They had this romantic vision of what life was like back in Egypt, and they'd quickly forgotten just how awful, how horrendous their lives as slaves were, how they were brutally treated. And they'd forgotten how God had rescued them and freed them from slavery. And it's true, they were just eating manna every day. And it wasn't a very exciting diet, but it wouldn't be forever. It was only for a short time because they were on their way to the land flowing with milk and honey. And instead of seeing the big picture and, and instead of celebrating being free, instead of celebrating being free from being stuck in brutal slavery, and rather than thanking God for His, his miraculous daily provision, of manner and, and, and looking forward to soon being in this amazing promised land. They were dissatisfied with God and they were dissatisfied with their lives. They failed to see what God had done, was doing, and would do very soon. They'd lost sight of the fact that what they were going through was worth the short-term pain, the short-term discomfort, because the big picture of what lay ahead of them. They'd lost sight of it. I don't know about you, but I find a lot of parallels and similarities between myself and the grumbling Israelites. Maybe I'm the only one who's like this, but instead of celebrating the fact that Jesus has set me free from slavery to sin, and, and instead of celebrating and looking forward to the fact that one day I'll be with him forever, for all eternity, I so often focus on my temporary hardships and difficulties that I face right here on earth right now. Certainly true that like the, the Israelites in the desert, our lives can be difficult. No doubt about that. We sometimes have health problems. Lots of folks here this morning have got health problems. We sometimes struggle financially. We sometimes we find ourselves lonely. We find ourselves depressed. Sometimes we face real challenges at work, and, and work can become intolerable. Or in our families, and, and family life can fall apart, and relationships can go wrong. But instead of celebrating what God has, has done for me and what he's going to do for me for all eternity, I don't know about you, but I often end up focusing on what the Bible calls my light and momentary troubles. Sometimes like the Israelites, I want to go back to Egypt. And sometimes like the Israelites, I'm ungrateful for God's provision in my life. I'm dissatisfied with God and I'm dissatisfied with his provision for me. And I want more. 
And I fail to realize and remember that anything worth doing in life is always hard. And I forget that this life is only brief and that I'm on my way to somewhere so much better towards spending eternity with God. This is what Jesus said about those who believe in him and follow him. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Trusting in Jesus and following him often makes for a difficult life here on earth. I did not liaise with uh, Rachel and Stuart this morning at all, other than just to pick a final song. But isn't it great what they've shared this morning, just the reality of what it is to be a martyr. And, and many people, many believers this morning are not free to meet like we are. They are facing imprisonment, they're facing death, they're facing torture, they're facing brutal treatment. And we heard a, the poem of one martyr before he died. And we've sung about following Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. In this world, you will have trouble, says Jesus. And trusting in Jesus and following him often makes for a difficult life here on earth. But it leads to an amazing eternity with God in heaven, enjoying his love forever. Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Taking up our cross and da daily means being prepared to die to what I want, being prepared to die to the flesh and to self and this world on a daily basis and instead follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will go. The cross before me, the world behind me. Following Jesus should be marked and is marked by self-denial and self-sacrifice. The majority of, the, of Christians in the world today don't live as we do. They're not free. They don't have a great deal of wealth. The majority of Christians in the world today and throughout church history are not this morning complaining because they haven't had a foreign holiday in a few months. They're not complaining that it's been a few weeks since they had a takeaway or a, or a nice meal out or a nice coffee out. They're not complaining that their car isn't the latest model or that their phone is last year's edition. Most of them are just trying to stay alive and avoid the terrible persecution that they face from the authorities and those around them. And yet here in, the re here in the West, where we are materially rich beyond anything we realize, like the Israelites, we're often dissatisfied with God and dissatisfied with his provision. And we focus on the problems we have in this life rather than celebrating our wonderful, amazing Savior. And we focus on the problems we have in this life rather than fo celebrating and focusing on the fact that he's rescued us from sin and on where he's taking us to. The Apostle Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Sometimes we really do face troubles. Of, of course we do. I don't want to minimize or trivialize the very real troubles that some of us might be facing and experience this, experiencing this morning. Some of us might feel like, and maybe we are physically outwardly wasting away. But the challenge for each one of us is to put those temporary troubles into perspective in the big picture of things. We need to remember what God has already done for us. That's why it's so important that we take communion on a weekly basis. We never stop remembering all that God has done for us through Jesus in setting us free from sin and the eternal consequences of sin. We need to remember where we've come from and where we'd be if we hadn't trusted in Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Where would I be this morning if I didn't believe in Jesus? You wouldn't be here. 
Where would you be? What would your life look like if it wasn't for Jesus? And I've put these thoughts down on your outline for you if you want to kind of fill these in. Firstly, we need to remember. We never should stop remembering what God has done for us. The Israelites had to have the Passover every year to look back and remember on what God had done for them. They had just celebrated the Passover when today's uh, reading took place. They had just celebrated it, and yet despite remembering, they had very quickly forgotten. It's important that we remember. Write that on your outline. It's important that we remember what God has done for us and where we would be if we hadn't trusted in Jesus. And then we need to focus on our eternal destination. Write that on your outline. We need to focus on where we're going. This life is temporary. This world and its problems, as terrible as they are and as terrible and as difficult as they can be for us, are only temporary or momentary, as Paul puts it. And then we need to fix our eyes not on what is seen, our troubles, but on what is unseen, that which is eternal. We need to fix our eyes on who? On Jesus. Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus this morning? On that which is eternal. Because like the people of Israel, God is leading us day by day towards an amazing destination. If we've trusted in Him, then we'll spend eternity with Him, enjoying His love forever. This life and this world are often hard. Of course they are. But nothing worth doing in life is ever easy. The problems in this massive Israelite camp of about two and a half million people, uh, Moses mentioned 600,000 fighting men, and then if you do the math and add up their family, you get to about two and a half million people at the very least. The problems in this massive Israelite camp all started when a small group of what the Bible calls a rabble began to influence everybody else. Verse 4 says this, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. You ever found yourself doing that or the equivalent of it? If only I had whatever it is, dot, dot, dot. It's amazing how quickly the discontent spread right the way throughout the camp. Between two and a half million people, no social media, just word of mouth, the discontent just spread from this small rabble. And the rest of the people allowed themselves to be sucked in and to be influenced by an ungodly and a disruptive group of people. And it ended up having real consequences for the whole nation. Instead of remembering what God had done for them, trusting Him for the present, and focusing then on their eternal destiny in the promised land, they just became discontented. They became discontented with God, first and foremost, and then with His provision. And as we try to follow Jesus and live for Him in this world, which is often difficult to do, and as we try and stay focused on what lies ahead of us in eternity, we need to be really careful about the kind of people and the kind of things that we allow to influence us. We are all really easily influenced. And we need to be really careful about the kind of people and the kind of things that we allow to influence us. It's interesting that this rabble weren't outsiders. They were people living in the camp along with everybody else. You know, just because a person professes to be a Christian, they might even be a church member, they might even be, you know, a close friend of ours, it doesn't always necessarily mean that they're a good influence on us. It's really important to evaluate our lives and see who and what is influencing our lives in a negative way, in a way that's unbiblical and ungodly. They might even be close friends, they might profess to be believers but not every influence in our life is always a good influence, always a godly influence, always a biblical influence. And I guess it's also good to turn that question around and say, am I a good, am I a godly, a biblical influence on those around me? Do I influence people to love Jesus more 
or do I influence people to be dissatisfied with Jesus? Who or what is influencing us to want to go back to Egypt, to wanting to turn away from Jesus? Who are or what are those influences in our lives? Who are or, or what is influencing us to, more importantly, take our eyes off Jesus? Who or what are those influences? Who or what is influencing us to focus on the temporary pleasures of this world instead of living for Jesus day by day? It's really good to examine our lives from time to time and, and, and see who and what is an ungodly and unbiblical influence in our lives. And then as much as possible, it's not, we can't remove them, but as much as possible, try to limit the influence that they have or it has on us. At the heart of this account, is a people who are dissatisfied with God. That's the heart of this account. It's a people who are dissatisfied, not so much with stuff, but with God. And that overflows and overspills into their dissatisfaction with his provision for them. But it starts with a dissatisfaction with God. They weren't prepared to trust him, and they weren't prepared to put up with a year or so of hardship. That's all it would have been. It, it didn't need to be 40 years. It only needed to be 13 or 14 months, and they would have been in the, in the promised land. It took 40 years because of their disobedience. But at this stage, it was 13 months. Moses was overwhelmed with the task of leading these ungrateful Israelites, and, and by their moaning and their, their complaining. And so he rightly and wisely took the whole situation to God. God was gracious to Moses, and he provided a kind of eldership council for him to help him lead and govern the people. But God's response to Moses was different to his response to the people. And that's because of the motives that Moses had were different to those of the people. In fact, in, in the very next chapter, it tells us that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. You know, sometimes when people tell God that they want something that's contrary to God's desire for them, he allows them to have what they want. But then they have to live with the consequences of wanting something that God didn't want them to have. The people were prepared to put up, weren't prepared to put up with the short-term inconvenience of living on manna, even though it was miraculous, even though it was amazing, and it was amazing provision from God for them day by day. They wanted meat. And so God says, you want meat, you can have meat. But this is what God told Moses to say to the people. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord. It wasn't the manna they had rejected. They had rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? And so the Lord miraculously sent quail, which are a small bird. Here's a picture of what a quail looks like if you've not seen one before. And, and verse 31 tells us that, a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. No one gathered less than ten homers. That's not a character from The Simpsons. It's apparently, it's a measure which is apparently equivalent to 2,200 liters so they were absolutely overrun with quail. They were stuffing their faces with quail. Each per the, the, the very least anyone gathered was 2,200 liters equivalent of quail. And they stuffed their faces with it for a whole month until they were sick of it. And they never wanted to see another quail again. You know, God basically says to them, if you're dissatisfied with my miraculous provision of manna, and if you want meat, then I'll give you meat. So much meat that you're going to be sick of it. And you get this picture of a kind of total meat frenzy with people gorging on quail meat. And just as the Lord had promised, 
They'd have so much meat that they'd eventually be fed up with it. Then in verse 33, we read this, but while the meat was still between their teeth, before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Maybe they were so impatient to feast on the meat that they didn't cook it properly, and they ended up with a severe and fatal food poisoning. We don't know. But whatever form this plague took, some of the people died and were buried there. And so they named the place Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. God had entered into a special covenant relationship with the people of Israel, which they'd all agreed to live by when Moses came down from the mountain. And they'd all agreed to live by that and obey that. And that involves submitting to God as their king and as their ruler. But by complaining about the manna, by craving meat, by wanting to go back to Egypt, they were essentially actually rejecting God. They were rejecting God himself. And so as they rejected God, he in turn rejected them and allowed some of them to die from some form of illness, probably possibly linked to the quail itself. You know, God is holy, God is righteous, and the anger he displayed here isn't that kind of out-of-control anger, that kind of anger that we have or often have. It was his settled anger against sin and against rebellion. And so as a holy and a righteous God, he was totally just and right to punish their sin and their rebellion in any way that he chose. Now, we're not under the old covenant that, that God established with the people of Israel. If, if we've trusted in Jesus this morning, then we're under the new covenant. And that means that any sins or rebellion that we might engage in has been dealt with by Jesus. So we don't need to fear God's rightful wrath against our sin because Jesus has already taken God's wrath against our sin when he died on the cross. Jesus has already paid the price. And that's amazing, isn't it? We live under God's grace. He treats us as though we, in a way that we don't deserve. We deserve his wrath on a daily basis, but in his grace, because Jesus took it already, we are safe. But you know, as followers of Jesus, when we are unwilling to trust God, and actually when we're, un- when we're dissatisfied with God himself, and when we're not willing to be satisfied with what he's provided for us in life, he sometimes allows us to have what we crave. Even though he knows we don't need it, He knows that maybe it's bad for us. He sometimes says, okay, if you want this so much, here you are. Then we have to live with the consequences of our refusal to trust God. The consequences ultimately of our rejection of God. And we have to live with the consequences of refusing to trust his provision for us. And then we discover that actually God knew best all along. I can, for instance, think of people I know who've been single but weren't prepared to trust God and to trust his plans for their life, and they craved a relationship so badly that they married a non-Christian. And then they then regretted doing that for the rest of their life. They got what they wanted, they got what they craved, a relationship, but then they discovered that actually God knew best, and they should have stayed single all along. Because as nearly always happens in that kind of situation, the non-Christian they married didn't share their beliefs, didn't share their values. They ended up trapped in a dysfunctional and miserable marriage and had to live with the consequences of their dissatisfied craving. I wonder if you're being tempted today to be dissatisfied with God. Are you tempted to be dissatisfied with God's provision for your life and for your circumstances day by day? and to crave the things that God in his wisdom has chosen not to give you. You're tempted to forget his amazing grace in rescuing you from sin and setting you free, and you're tempted to take your eyes off Jesus and the amazing eternal destiny that he has for us. 
The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says that he'd learned the secret of contentment. So what is the secret? What is the secret of being content with what God gives us in our lives? He says this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret is to focus on Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. We sing it, but do we really mean it? Take the world, but give me Jesus. Jesus is all I need. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. Remember what he's done and where we'd be if it wasn't for Jesus. Remind ourselves of the blessings that he gives us day by day. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Focus on our eternal destiny. Protect ourselves from the influences that would encourage us to be dissatisfied with God first and foremost, and fill our hearts and minds with the goodness of God as we fill our lives with Jesus. I called this morning satisfied with Jesus. Satisfied isn't a good enough word. Satisfied sounds as if it's just, well, I'll put up with that. I'll make do with Jesus. He'll keep me going through this life. That's the biggest kind of wrong word. I can't think of a better way to put it, but being satisfied with Jesus is not enough. Being amazed with Jesus, being blown away by Jesus, being in love with Jesus. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Not just a little bit, not just I'm satisfied, he keeps me going until I hang on until he comes again. Jesus is amazing. He's wonderful. He's so much better than any of the, the tat that we fill our lives with. take a few moments and pause and reflect on what we've said this morning. Can I encourage you this morning to commit yourself to focusing on Jesus, who he is, all that he's done and all that he's doing for you and will do for you. And, and maybe this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, let me tell you, whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're looking to, whatever you're filling your life with, ultimately will leave you helpless and hopeless because only Jesus can rescue you from your sin. Only Jesus can give you a relationship with God and eternal life. And I would encourage you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we want to go back to Egypt. Forgive us, Father, when we want meat, the meat of this world, rather than the manna that you provide us day by day. Forgive us when we want to go back to Egypt rather than going to the, the promised land that you've promised to us of eternal life with you. Forgive us when we wail. Forgive us when we're dissatisfied, not just with the stuff of this world, but when we're dissatisfied ultimately and more importantly with you. Forgive us, we pray. Lord Jesus, would you so fill our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you so fill our hearts with the love of Jesus that everything else 
is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Everything else is a dung heap, as Paul would write, compared to knowing Jesus. Consider all these things rubbish that we might know Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you as we look back that you have set us free from sin. You've rescued us. You've given us so much in this life. So much more importantly, you've given us eternal life. Most of all, we thank you for you, Lord Jesus. May we just be totally taken up with you, all that you are, and all that you've done for us. We love you. We worship you. We praise you this morning. Amen.